And now it's time for Mind Body Health with your host, Dr. Marvin Trotter. Good morning, Eddie. We have a remarkable individual with us today who I always go to f- to solve my problems at the hospital. Uh, Angela Eves Lewis is a is the head of case management at the hospital. And we started discussing individual individual insurance and also um, the broader picture of healthcare uh, as we know it. And I thought it would be a fascinating show for people to have some insight into the difficult socio-medical aspects of the hospital. You know, I think most people think of going to the hospital, you have pneumonia and you get your antibiotics and leave, and that isn't the case for most people. Um, So welcome, Angela. And my first question, of course, is how did you get to Mendocino County? Thanks, Marvin. Um, So I I was born and raised in Ukiah. My mom was a local LVN. My dad was a mechanic. Um, I went to Ukiah High School, you know, did my turn through the education here in Ukiah, and then later I received my master's um, of social work. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I did not know you were an LCSW. Yes, sir. Well, (coughs) sorry, I have a virus. The first thing I'd like people to understand is exactly what is case management, because um, it's certainly a term or an occupation that most people don't have an idea about? Well, in different settings, case management can look widely like different, but case management in the hospital setting, it entails um, making sure that the doors stay open. So our local hospital, you know, we have three hospitals in Mendocino County. We refer to them as one Adventist. I'm the manager at Adventist Ukiah. Um, Ukiah Valley Medical Center is the former name. Um, So case management, we have to assist everyone who comes in with coming up with a safe discharge plan. Um, Part of that is knowing what their um, payer is, what their insurance is. Um, Part of it is talking to each individual or their families and finding out what life looks like when they're not in the hospital. And one of the things that comes up in our area, we have quite a few people who either don't have coverage, they don't get regular medical care, and we help make sure that after their hospitalization they have um, an appointment. We make sure that they have the follow-up care to stay as healthy as possible outside the hospital. So I want people to understand that um, the two things that we'd like to talk about today is what you do... Uh, for your own health insurance because it's a wide variety of possibilities there and it impacts uh, everybody a lot uh, when they have to go to the hospital to seek medical care. So I want it to be an individual thing that we'll talk about but also talk about the difficulties that the hospital in the United States um, has with medical care. One out of every five dollars spent in the United States of America is spent on medical care. When I was a resident, it was like 8 or 9%. It's now almost 20%. And there's 10,000 new Medicare patients a day uh, that come of age, uh, as I did five years ago, in the U.S. It's a huge industry. And the insurance is about as clear as the Mississippi River to me. So first of all, Angela, tell us about your view of individual health insurance before and after Medicare. 
Well, you know, I, as a licensed clinical social worker, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on what insurance each individual should have. So I can talk about my experience in helping individuals who have different types of insurance. So first and foremost, it really... I, I think most people don't know what their coverages are. When I say that, we just assume that, oh my goodness, if I'm sick, I go to the hospital, they will wrap me up, and I will be ready to go. But then when a lot of families you know, come to the hospital with their aging relatives, we're seeing people who didn't know that they don't have long-term care coverage. We see people who didn't know that insurance doesn't cover caregiving. We see so much of that. And Define long-term care and individual caregiving. Well, when I was growing up, we had the idea that when you got older, there were these you know, convalescent hospitals, which now we call skilled nursing, um, where you'd go, and that would be where you served you know, the last days of your life, and you'd pass there. Um, nowadays, the nursing homes are skilled. So skilled nursing, you go, you spend maybe 20 days, maybe 40 days, and then, you know, you transition back to your original living situation. So long-term care would be when you don't need that short-term skillable care and you maybe have passed the point where you're rehabable. And I say that because, you know, there's a certain point where our bodies are, you know, they've, they've done what they can and they've served us well, but they're not bouncing back like they used to. We just really need somebody to to provide board and care for us. So long-term coverage would be just that room and board and you know making sure that you have your basics and um, skilled nursing they do have a few long-term care beds but there's rarely the opportunity where insurance will pay for that so I think this is a misconception of most people so I have Blue Cross or I have Obamacare or you know whatever and I've suffered an accident or an illness and I need to go to a SNF or an SNF for 30 days. Um, not all insurances cover that expensive, I don't know, how much is it a day to be at a, <laughs> at a convalescent? Uh, uh, honestly, I don't have the exact number <laughs> off the top of my head because I think there are a lot of factors, especially different insurances pay different rates. But, um, you know, like the first thing that happens when you come to the hospital if you need that level of care is we reach out to the insurance company and um, we'll have to provide notes depending on um, what you're doing with you know physical therapy and different things and we have to make a case to insurance companies just like you would make a case in front of a judge you have to to prove certain things are met so that the insurance company will pay for that level of care and if you know, you're able to, then it's easy, but sometimes, you know, our bodies betray us. <laughs> well, I know that you mentioned that people should not look at TV and see Hawaii Five O uh, guy selling insurance and they to themselves, gosh, he's really cute. I ought to buy that insurance. <laughs> How does one go about deciding these things or, the, you know, picking your insurance? Well, there are experts out there who can help. I actually have pamphlets that I can hand out in the hospital setting of an agency that can support people with that choice. I don't get to tell anyone what insurances are good, what insurances are bad, but I do get to 
help them ask questions. So if you see um, someone advertising on TV, used to be an NFL player, go get this Medicare Advantage plan. Well, sure, this guy was a really cool player, and maybe he did break his knee a couple times, but he probably private paid. So ask the questions uh, like at least at a minimum, ask questions of what's your success rate at um, getting a person into a skilled nursing facility with this insurance because there are quite a few Medicare Advantage plans that we have experience where I will still be waiting for an approval from them to place somebody in skilled nursing while the person's rehabbing at the hospital and you know they can turn around get well enough to go home before we get the approval so the questions you want to ask are do they have long-term care coverage what does the approval process look like if you're in the hospital you need to go to skilled and um, do they guarantee a certain turnaround time in giving that approval because they can take up to two weeks and and them taking up to two weeks is how they get out of paying for it at all. That's true, but the financial impact on the patient is enormous. Yes, so if you don't know to ask those questions up front, and if you can't get the answers to those questions up front, there may be reasons why. And I went to an insurance broker, I won't use somebody's name, but I asked around and somebody said, you know, go to this professional insurance broker because you can ask them and they actually know the answers to those questions. Because I know that when people think, oh, I had a stroke, now I need physical therapy for months at home, oh, we don't cover physical therapy at home. Or I need a caregiver at home, IHSS workers. So I'm, I'm just saying that I think um, the point Angela is making is um, when you're buying insurance, be well informed because there's a lot of out out of hospital costs that you may not be aware of. That's absolutely true. And some of us are lucky enough to have insurance provided for us through our employers. Some of us are able to get Medi-Cal coverage. Some of us, you know, don't have that that luck and they have to purchase their own. So, you know, whether you are assigned the insurance from your uh, employer or you purchase it out of pocket just know that there may be points where the, you're not covered and that liability can really affect us in the long run in our financial well-being so I'm speaking with Angela Eves Lewis who's the head of case management and who has taken a department that was um, in some disrepair and made it into a great <clears throat> thing at UVMC um, so um, I, I would like you to just do one patient as an example to people. Pick somebody out that comes in with a stroke or a heart attack or pneumonia and take them through their hospital stay and if they have to be discharged somewhere, just to give people an idea of the general how things work. Okay. Because I think it's a lot more complex than people have any idea. Yes. Well, it starts in the emergency room, so let's let's take a let's call a patient Betsy I'm just gonna give you a generic because there could be a million Betsy's so Betsy comes in she has Medicare A and B in its traditional Medicare it's not an advantage plan or she could have private insurance either way um, so that person comes in and the emergency room physician decides this person needs more time in the hospital um, let's let's say they have an acute um, 
an acute stroke. Um, so they call an admitting physician because we have certain physicians who are in charge of doing the admission. They will, you know, um, assess the patient. And I know you can probably talk more about that than I can you know, with being an MD, Dr. Trotter. <coughs> but um, so I have a uh, an RN in the ER who's a part of my team, case management, who's there to advise if there's any um, social issues or other concerns that would assist the person in not being admitted if that was avoidable. But they have a stroke, they need to come in. So they come into the hospital and within the first 24 hours, one of my team members will meet with them, whether it's a social worker, an MSW, Master of Social Work, or a registered nurse, they will do the basic screening. So we try to have everyone screened within 24 hours. Um, in that screening, we find out what their social situation looks like. When they're at home, were they able to walk without a cane? Did they have any durable medical equipment? We call that DME. Um, did they have caregiving? You know, did they drive to appointments? Did they have a doctor? And in asking all of those questions, we also ask if they have an advanced directive, um, which is our, you know, legal form to make sure that we know what their wishes are, who can make decisions if they can't. Um, we do that screening, and then every day we're meeting, we're coordinating with the, the the hospitalist team, the physical therapists, the patients getting care the entire time they're there. We're taking all of that information in a multidisciplinary um, t a manner, and we are communicating what the patient has when the physical therapist says, okay, well, they aren't able to ambulate by themselves. They can't walk by themselves. Where they need this level of support, we recommend skilled nursing. Then we talk to the patient about choice because we don't place people, we don't move people without their consent. And um, we would tell them what skilled nursing facilities w are accepting them, you know. But you make it sound <clears throat> easy. <laughs> I, you know, what always surprised me is how many elderly widows there are in the community that are living alone and that as you said the social determinants of health completely change you have an independent woman in her seventies who now has had a stroke who's taking care of herself she feeds her dog she grocery shops she does everything and now she has an impairment it completely changes her social picture it absolutely does, and those are some of the most difficult cases because, you know, we sometimes we don't have conversations with our friends or our loved ones ahead of time because we don't expect to have that moment where we're not going to be able to go home without support. So that's that's a great point. I wish everybody will think about that just for a moment. Please have a discussion with your loved ones about what your wishes are if something was to happen to you because it's very important because lots of times um, you're unable to express yourself when that happens. If you're a parent, you make a backup plan for if you can't pick up your child from school. You know, if you're a if you are a, I'm trying to think of other other examples. I I guess I digress and. Um, as an older person, as a middle-aged person, when we no longer are the child, we can't com we can't um, 
we can't plan on our parents swooping in and saving us. We need to start having those conversations. Sometimes sometimes just talking to your neighbors. Okay, if your car breaks down, you're a single person, come to me. I'll help you. If my car breaks down, will you help me? You know, making those agreements ahead of time and in the communities that we are a part of, like whether or not you are a church goer and you have that religious community or if you are involved in other communities um having those conversations with others and helping each other out that's one of the ways that you know you might have somebody you could call in those moments so thinking ahead like that i personally i'm in my 40s but i can tell you that i have the phone numbers of the neighbors all around my house in case i'm away from home and i need to make a call that's just and it's something that most people think that they're going to die in their sleep when they're 84 and it just doesn't happen that way We'd all be lucky if something like that happens, but maybe not 84, maybe 104. Okay. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the hospital case management and medical care in general. Like I said, um, you know, an enormous amount of money goes into medical care. And I want people to understand the, the onus, I think that's the word, that the hospital has in caring for people. I had a friend of mine talking about somebody, and they said, oh, you know, they should do a granny dump. And I was like, a granny dump? Yeah, just take your grandmother to the hospital and put them in the ER. Because the hospital is expected to do all this social, medical, end of life, everything. And I want people to realize that um, I I do utilization management for the Medi-Cal population, the 60,000 people in a lake in Mendocino County. And when you have a disabled patient who the nursing homes do not want to take care of, Angela becomes their mother. I don't know quite how to say this, or the hospital becomes their mother, that these people are disabled, they can't care for themselves, um, they, they live alone, they can't go back to independent living, and the hospital is on the hook to try to find a safe discharge. Could you, could you tell us what the legal requirements of a safe discharge from the hospital are? Because I think people have no idea how difficult this is for the hospital. There's two aspects to that question. Everyone who can get up and walk has the ability to walk out, and we, you know, legally, nobody can stop you. It's just a part of life. You have that right. So there's always the possibility that the person could choose to leave on their own. Um, so when when something like that happens and a family member is is dropped at the emergency room or whatever, um, we have to attempt to talk to that person if they have capacity when i say capacity not everyone who fits that bill that you just described is able to um they're they're not always alert and oriented we say alert and oriented times four you know to self to place to time to you know situation so we try to get an idea of where they came from who was around them what was going on also we look at their insurance and we try to decide if there's a possibility of them, um, if they meet acute inpatient status, um, whether or not we can 
consider skilled nursing for a, a short time to help them get stronger so they can return. So a safe discharge plan, um, I want to say that's a little relative because everyone comes from a different situation. If you come from um, a home that is you have running water, you have heat, you have the basics, then you might just need caregiving. So we can talk to the, the patient and we have agencies in town that do private caregiving and we've had a lot of success in matching those persons with um, caregivers. That's private pay though, not paid by insurance. So if you're lucky enough to have that, uh, those funds available, that factors into a safe discharge plan. Sometimes the person comes in from a condemned house. That's a little bit more tricky. So I consider a safe discharge plan um, at, at the least the person has their basic needs met or the ability to meet those basic needs. And it's sometimes relative because the housing is different in each case, the support's different in each case, the finances are different in each case. And I have a good working relationship with Adult Protective Services. So, you know, we we coordinate with community as much as possible when it's appropriate, when the patient consents, because of HIPAA, you know. And believe it or not, Angela has no gray hair, and she does this on a daily basis. Um, one other topic that I'd like to bring up is I don't think that people have a good idea of what the drug and alcohol problems of Lake and Mendocino County cause for our society and the hospital um, and how to address that. I'm on the, uh, I'm on the board at uh, Ukiah Recovery Center at Ford Street and they, they work all the time trying to give people an alternative to their alcohol and drug use. But um, um, the, the state gives the Adventist hospitals money every month to take care of all hospitalizations. Uh, for these Medi-Cal patients I'm talking about, 70% of the money goes to drug and alcohol issues. That's that's like 40 or $50 million a year. And I don't think that people have any idea of how... Anyway, I'll let the LCSW discuss <laughs> the social determinants of health because I think that's a topic that people should think about. and not, And it's not just drug and alcohol. Well, social determinants of health, um, you might not have heard that term before, but I can tell you that in social work and in the hospital, it's something we talk about many, many times a day. Um, so we don't all come from the same background. We're not all on the same socioeconomic you know, um, level. So from accident of birth, I was lucky to have my needs met and be able to go to college and do all those things. Um, other people with accident of birth, and that's a social work term, they may end up in, you know, situations where childhood trauma and different things affect their ability to to cope and function so we all use behavior as a coping skill and um, when unfortunately the person's coping skill is um, substances or alcohol um, they are you know in situations where they come to the hospital with a lot of um, a lot of health issues that are preventable. Um, not everything's preventable, but but in these cases, 
we usually do have a lot. Social work, we don't wear a cape because we can't save anyone. But all we can do... No, that's not true. <laughs> your cape gets caught in the in the plane engine every time. If you've ever seen the instruct, uh, you know, the cartoon. Anyways, so we educate, we offer resources, we offer all of the information about supports in this community, in this area, and we wait. And the people come in and we treat them with the same respect. We treat other people and we listen. Um, the amazing thing about our community is we have so many wonderful people who work in support positions that care and they're non-judgmental. I know that if the person has partnership and they're a high utilizer, I can call over to the Compass team and there's a social worker over there, Faith Dayton, um, LCSW, who helps wrap people in this community. She works directly with Marvin, too. I know that, um, you know, Ukiah Recovery Center is a place that we can potentially refer people to. But social determinants of health are huge. If, um, if I can count on my if I had a nickel for every person I saw with a GI bleed this year because of alcohol, and this year is barely started, I would be pretty rich. I'd be able to start my own agency. So, And I don't know if people, you know, I'm just interrupting Angela for a moment because um, when you drink a lot, say you're 40 years old, you've you've ruined your liver, your platelets don't work well, and you come in vomiting blood because you have an ulcer in your stomach or your stomach is just completely shredded from all the alcohol abuse. You're throwing up blood, you come in the emergency room, you have low blood pressure, you're getting you know, stat IV fluids, you're getting blood transfused, you're calling up the intensivist to be admitted to the ICU, you sometimes get put on a ventilator because they don't want you to inhale your blood into your lungs and die, you're in the ICU for two or three days, you stabilize, you have your, a decent blood count, you go to med surge, you've quit bleeding, oh, by the way, you've gone into DTs, you've had multiple drugs uh, while you were intubated or in, in your IV, and now you've gone through 10 days of hell <clears throat> in the hospital, and now your case management's problem. Well, not problem. You're you're, you're one so of our, tactful. You're, you're one of, so tactful. You're one of our community members who are in need, and we're there. Um, I, I say that genuinely because I know you do. You're you're, everyone, you're an angel. Okay. Everyone okay. everyone deserves the support, and everyone deserves the the help. You know, um, we're not always ready for help. So I can't tell you how many times I've seen the person the first time they have a GI bleed and they go through everything you've e explained. And then um, they tell us that, oh, I'm, I'm done. I'm not drinking anymore. But honestly, I can tell you from many, many conversations with the same people that the first time you have that uh-oh moment and... You say, I'm not doing it anymore. Well, give it two weeks, and that memory's not as fresh in your mind. And then, you know, life gets hard again, or it never it never eased, and so you self-medicate a little bit more. Um, and I want to go back to the substance use and alcohol use issue. Okay. With that, one of the 
biggest, one of the most impactful treatments for that is connection. So when you see somebody with those issues, if we label them as you know, problems, or if we label them as issues, we are separating them, we're dehumanizing them. And the more dehumanizing we do, the more those issues increase. So when we are looking at this, connection is the way we treat it. And I can't speak personally about AA or NA or any of those, but, you know, treatment it, it's all about connection, connecting with a higher power, connecting with others who go through the same issues, you know. And Marvin calls me an angel, but honestly, he's the guy I call when I have somebody who needs assistance getting into um, a safe place for a few days before they can go to treatment. So, And I must admit that um, um, having my own family member problems with my brother, et cetera, et cetera, that the the discussion you talk about coping skills what your you know what you experience as a child is why i've put so much time and effort into the boys and girls club what can we do to make us <clears throat> have better elementary schools in my view america has fallen flat on its face we should have the very best elementary and junior high schools possible please look up iceland teens and drugs Iceland teens and drugs. They went from the worst alcohol and drug problems in Europe to the to the least alcohol and drug problems in Europe because they went after the social determinants of health and provided more for the children after school, et cetera, et cetera. And having started working more closely with the Kai Recovery Center and hearing the stories of the people that are there, I don't know how they've survived. I mean, you know, they they've all every one of them have gone through some sort of hell and this isn't some moral failure on their part but i think like you say when things are terrible and you're trying to find coping skills and drugs and alcohol lets you stop the pain it isn't surprising to me that they have uh issues with substance abuse so it's difficult medically taking care of these people but it isn't a um, moral judgment I'm making. Does that sound better? I know you, and I know okay. this isn't a moral judgment. I absolutely hear that, and it resonates with me, because there's no one who is more passionate about helping people, especially when they're you know, in that situation. Well, it's 9.30. We're going to start taking phone calls, so you can call Angela and ask her every difficult question you want to about case management, insurance, or social determinants of health at 895-2448, 895-2448. While we're waiting for that, may I give a shameless plug? Sure. Um, so I'm also a board member at Hospice of Ukiah. Oh, great. And I've been doing that since last year. I wanted to bring up Hospice of Ukiah because they are an agency in the community who will treat anyone. So if you, well, I say anyone, so it's palliative care or um, hospice services. They don't bill insurance, so everything they do is based on donations. Um, hospice of Ukiah is there for the people in our community who don't have hospice coverage and you know need assistance with that palliative with um, end-of-life situations and we have a phone call caller you're on the air good morning I have a question for your guest okay um, I have recently been given this folder called five wishes 
by my um, health clinic. And it's how you want your end of life um, and your wishes to proceed. And you need someone who will lobby for you or, uh, I don't know the right word, um, be responsible for seeing that your wishes get carried out. But that person cannot work for your health clinic. And for so many of us, the people who know us best are, are the providers at the health clinic. And I'm wondering why that is. Um, because some of us don't have anyone else to ask to help be that person. Um, because our families are gone or whatever. That's a good so how question. do we? <clears throat> okay. What do you say? Well, That's an interesting uh, I, thought. I never thought about that. I hadn't thought about it in that manner either. I can say that getting that form filled out, even if you don't have the witnesses, having someone notarize it, you can have that put on file with your health clinic and with the hospitals in this area. Um, the reason why, in my opinion, we don't, we aren't able to have someone from our health clinic or, you know, our medical care be our advocate is because we also, we have a financial and a professional relationship with the people that we serve when we work in healthcare. So they can't, it can't be somebody who could potentially have a conflict of interest. And I absolutely adore my doctor. I do. But in, you know, the grand scheme of things, doctors and, you know, healthcare providers, we also have to um, keep the doors open. So. But I just think there is a, some sort of conflict of interest. But I do think that the caller's point about um, um, doing the five wishes and the pulse form. I can't tell you how important it is as an ER doc for someone to be coming in code three by the ambulance and know that they do not want to be intubated or put on a ventilator. Night and day difference of what happens to you. So please pursue this with somebody. We have another call. Oh. So <clears throat> I'd like to go back to Hospice Vikaya because um, Dr. Newkirk has told me how many regulations there are when you have a Medicare hospice sort of situation. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a there's a a Medicare certified hospice, and then there's Hospice of Ukiah, which is just a free service performed by volunteers, and they have a store there on State Street um, <clears throat> near downtown that that you can get lots of good stuff at. Um, but tell us more about hospice because it's amazing the amount of effort that goes into uh, taking care of somebody when they're critically ill. And it's a difficult thing to have somebody at home. When you don't have insurance coverage, you don't have the funds to, you know, get those services. Um, Hospice of Ukiah has paid RNs and um, paid LVNs. They also have um, care aides. I don't want to call them um, a different term because they're not in an official um, CNA capacity. So they can help with getting equipment. I think we have another call. Yes. Caller, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Uh, so I was wondering if... Um a person was in um, a, a union-sponsored uh, uh, 
PPO or HMO um, advantage plan, and they were uh, approaching age 65. Uh, Is there a long-term benefit to um, uh, co-insure to sign up for original Medicare and then take the supplements like um, Medigap uh, Part G? Okay, that's a good question. That's pretty specific. I don't think I truly understood the question I, I, there. I, I think the question is, I, I would say go on Medicare, number one. But then he's saying should he just not go on Medicare and continue with some private insurance, et cetera. So I think that the best answer to that question is talk to your financial planner. Okay. Or an insurance broker. Or an insurance broker. That's a pretty specific question, especially since you have union coverage. It would be difficult. Well, because, you know, eventually in life then, you know, know, jobs come and go in terms of, you know, um, a person gets into a Medicare Advantage plan via the union and then, then they're they're no longer directly eligible for original Medicare, I believe, and so then one's options to sign up later in life. But anyways, that's your um, your suggestion is talk to a medical planner. Yeah, in the Medicare advocate in our community, there is one. I don't have the information off the top of my head, but I can provide it for okay. Marvin to um, okay. provide later. All right, we have another call. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, where do I get a copy of the advanced uh, care directive? I'd like to get five copies today for five people I know. Where can I go today in Fort Bragg and do that? Great question. Yeah, I think in Fort Bragg you could probably call the emergency department and ask if you could swing by and pick up those. You could probably also talk to your physician's office and ask if they have that many. Normally, doctor's office do have those too. Five right. wishes and advanced directives are, they're both kind of one and the same. I prefer the advanced directive myself. That's what I have, but. Advanced directives are more of a legal form that, that I'm aware of. I don't, I'm not sure about the five wishes, but I think it's a similar. It's, it's the same questions, but asked in a different way. Um, okay, but, I have another question okay. for you. So go to the Fort Bragg emergency room or the Fort Bragg hospital and ask for the form advanced care directive. Call first, just to make sure that they have a stack of them there and make sure that it's available before you head down. But you could also call your doctor's office. That may be an easier place. I, you know, I don't. I don't have a doctor. I'm a vet, and I, the VA is my clinic in Santa Rosa. But I do go mm. up here because I'm a hundred percent. But um, who, how do you get a hospital advocate to? I, I've heard that term. In case you get sick and you need an advocate in the hospital. Well, if you're in the hospital, you can always ask to talk to patient experience, and patient experience can advise you on what the support system looks like around that. So that's a that's a good um, um, point. Is there is a patient experience uh, advocate mm-hmm. uh, that you can call the hospital about, which was started a few years ago because it's it's such a complex maze of issues in a hospital. Um, so everybody think about the pulse form, advanced directive, all that kind of stuff. Because again, um, personally, I don't want to be intubated. Um, 
you know, unless it's a surprising different situation. But um, um, that's not how I want to end my life is on a ventilator. Um, but there's a lot of good issues that are brought up with advanced directives. I know that um, there was a pediatrician in town who was a healthy guy, raised pistachios, excellent health, and he had a stroke. And he had written down, don't put a feeding tube down me. If I have a stroke and cannot walk and you don't think I'm going to, I want to go home and pass away at home. Do not put me in a skilled nursing facility. It's okay if I don't eat or drink. Just give me some liquid morphine. And it was so comforting to have this person, this pediatrician that everybody adored, knowing exactly what he wanted and that was what was carried out you know with covid i had to reassess what my own um, choices were and it was a conversation i had to have with my spouse obviously but you know i in my 40s was questioning whether or not i would want to be intubated because i see what happens afterwards i'm not a medical provider i'm a social worker um and marvin you were talking about a pulse and i don't think we defined that so a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment that's that pink form if you have one you've probably know exactly what it is if you don't have one you may not so on that pulse form and that's something we can help fill out in the hospital um, there's a few questions and if the person has elected to get full treatment usually they don't have a pulse but if you want selective treatment or um, if you're found without a heartbeat do you want chest compressions do you want to be shocked those questions are specifically answered on that form in a very clear way um, um, and that form had a lot to do that was developed by the, in the state and Dr. Mark Apfel in Boonville was on the board that made up that form so you know if you have ill health personally I would have a pulse form on a magnet on my refrigerator so when the EMTs arrive they know exactly what you want to have happen uh, I had a quick question okay. um, as a you know um, not knowing a whole lot about the insurance process, um, I, I was curious about some of the, the terminology around long-term care, care homes, nursing homes. How does that all sort of relate to each other? Are those distinctly different things? And it, it seems like, you know, when I was a kid, I feel like it was a common place for, you know, you didn't have to worry about what happened to your, your grandparents. You, you could comfortably know that, you know, there there'd be someone to take care of them. But now it's it seems like it's a... A greater question and, and, and has something changed in the last 20 30 years to really make that the case things really have changed in the past 20 to 30 years I can't tell you what insurance companies look like when I was younger but I grew up helping I, I volunteered at a convalescent home that my mom worked at really? Emerald Hills before it was MCHC no we used to roll down the hill and, and like watch the deer um, so a long time ago convalescent homes you go you would go there you would stay for the rest of your life um that would technically be long-term care nowadays so skilled nursing facilities are the evolution of old convalescent homes so when we say sniff that's skilled nursing facility so um we'd be talking about like ukiah post acute redwood cove those places in ukiah um i think sherwood oaks is over on the coast and northbrook is the one up in willits they're you know skilled nursing homes all over the the state but the alternative to skilled nursing long-term care would be a board and care home which is basically like a like a house with 
rooms and people would pay a certain amount per month for board and care there are people who are there 24 7 providing food changing you know um keeping the the person clean and healthy those homes go for i want to say upwards of five thousand or more a month so you have to be you know really independently wealthy really independently wealthy to afford that there are also assisted living facilities which are also private pay like mountain view Mm -hmm. um long-term care when we say that we mean at a skilled nursing facility you're not doing rehab you're just living out the rest of your days you know you'll have your coffee you'll have your meals you know you'll be clean and uh safe and and cared for but it's but it's very different you know and, and what's <clears throat> frustrating to me is also these skilled nursing facilities um, don't take anyone. <clears throat> you know, they we may have a, a, a very difficult patient in the hospital, and it's a private business. And like you say, they're looking for the rehab person. They're looking for the person that just had knee surgery, let's say. They come in, they get physical therapy, they're there for two or three weeks, they're better, and they go home. It's a whole different thing saying, oh, I'm going to take a person who's paralyzed on their left side who has a feeding tube and, you know, has six drugs and is a very, you know, and is, weighs 350 pounds. I don't know how many you know, so they only have a short number of beds. So then the hospital has this difficult patient that the sniff doesn't want to take, and you're stuck in the mud. Um, Mountain View Assisted Living uh, is a beautiful place. You have to have the money for it, but it's, you know, their bedrooms are nicer than mine. Um, they have nice meals, there's all kinds of people to take care of you, but. It costs you out of your pocket, so it's it's not like your grandmother thirty years ago. Definitely not. Um, you know, thinking about the future, thinking about what happens if everyone who is listening, if you haven't thought about, if I were to break my hip and I had surgery, who would meet me at home? Who would make sure I got into the house? Um, if I were hospitalized for two days, three days, and I were a little weak, is there somebody who'd be able to stay with me overnight? Think about those things now, because if you don't have an answer to that question, the answer may be having to be in out-of-home care for a little bit, if you're lucky to have the coverage. Um, like, you know, in this in this area, we do have home health, and we do have home health physical therapy, but you technically have to be homebound. There's other regula- regulations in order to be able to get those services. That's not someone in your house 24-7 taking care of you. That's usually a nurse, one or two hours a week. And physical therapy, I'm going to take a guess and say one to two hours a week, but I don't have the definitive answer on that, and I don't want to tell a lie. So. Well, physical therapy, anyway, we can take more calls at 895-2448, 895-2448. We have another call. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. So I just want to comment on uh, and get an, uh, hear your thoughts on. Uh, there is... Uh, really a lot of difference in the quality of care of facilities. And some of them are quite good, and some of them are quite horrible. And um, so that's 
I, I think that, you know, when we're making plans for our parents or ourselves and our uh, whether we become disabled and need care at a young age or at a, an older age that we get to actually have some good guidance on 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 how and I, I know you're providing a lot of that on on how to find uh, and how to be a part of a quality care community and and that um, it really is uh, a matter of, um, of of in some ways class and race. Yeah. You should you should go visit the facility. I agree that there's differences and we have another call here. Thank you. I do want to say that Medicare has a website where all of the facilities are rated. I personally am not allowed to tell you which facilities are good, which facilities are bad, because it would be a conflict. But Medicare has a site that you can go to. They're all rated, and you should do your due diligence. And if you have a family member in a facility, be present, because that is the number one way you'll know that they're taken care of. We have another call. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. What's your question? Hi, Marvin. This is Leslie Kirkpatrick, and I don't have a question. I just have a comment. Okay, Leslie. Which is that that um, I just read an article this morning in the Washington Post that uh-huh. this is back to the alcohol and drug question that people who have a drink a day that their brain is shrinks more rapidly and that their brain is on average, this is just with one drink, two years older than that of non-drinkers. So that's just a comment. Okay. (laughs) How are you doing, Leslie? Thank you. Okay. I'm well, thank you. <laughs> everything everything in life is risk versus reward. Sometimes people decide they need to have their one glass of wine at the end of the day because that's their coping strategy. I'm not saying that's healthy or not healthy. We do what we need to do to cope, and whether or not you're aware of the effects, talk to your doctor. Um, but it is, it is interesting sociologically, you can answer this, that how alcohol is promoted you know if you're not a normal person and you have you can't drink because <clears throat> a lot of that is genetics some fascinating studies of they gave 114 year olds two shot of wild turkey the people that had alcohol abuse histories in their family metabolized it much differently than the non-alcohol families. So you're predisposed as a 14-year-old to becoming an alcoholic, and you're not a normal, you know, you're not the norm. You can't drink. And society shows you alcohol and drug abuse every day of your life. You I want to know the person that did the study on 14-year-olds and gave them two shots of wild turkey. I want to do a study on them. Um. Well, they were trying to show the the genetic predisposition. My mother's father, my brother, you know, and I certainly am at a higher risk of alcohol abuse than people that don't have that in their family. So one thing I like to tell my clients, because I am also a therapist, um, is that, you know, sometimes alcohol hits us differently also with our, um, 
ability to control our impulses. So if you are at all feeling depressed or you have suicidal thoughts or those, you know, types of concerns, just know that when you drink alcohol, your impulse control is lower. So I can't necessarily speak to the genetic factor, but I want to bring up depression because if you are using alcohol, it's a depressant. Your impulse control is lower. I do not want anyone to be another number on the amount of suicides we have here in this community, here in this country, yeah. in the Tw world. Twice the average in California. Caller, you're on the air. <coughs> Hi, yes. Um, I had a question about those advanced directives. And say you have one that you do not want to be intubated, et cetera, mm -hmm. and you're in fairly good health. You just happen to fill this thing out, and then you end up with COVID, and you end up in the hospital, and you maybe need to go on and, um, uh, you know, be intubated. Would that? Would they go ahead no. and do that in that situation? No, but you're conscious. When you have COVID, you come into the hospital, and you say, you can easily tell somebody, rip up my pink form. I want to be intubated. Five minutes oh, later, okay. it doesn't well, matter. Good question. I mean, is everyone that comes to the hospital with COVID conscious? Or? Yes, 90% of the time. No. Okay. In my experience, I would say the vast majority of people that we have seen have been conscious yeah, but i do want to reaffirm that if you are verbal you come to the hospital and you've changed your mind tell the hospitalist tell the people in the er tell the doctor that sees you on the floor verbally tell them and they will change in the computer system what your wishes are yeah. you can also fill out another form we do have someone who notarizes also if needed thank right. you very much we have another call Oh, we don't. <clears throat> now, I wanted you to know when you talk about it lowers your impulse control, I think of numbers too much. My father was a CPA. It lowers your impulse control if you drink alcohol. And that's why 70% of pregnancies uh, have uh, alcohol involved. Wow. Um, I think there's uh, quite a lot of online shopping that happens also with alcohol <laughs> involved. True. So, I mean, there are a lot of things in life that um, are affected by alcohol, affected I by drugs. I had not thought about that. Yeah. Do people really get on, just people, drink and get on and start clicking, huh? Yeah, and the amount of um, Facebook posts where people think it's funny that an Amazon box showed up because like, they were drunk and they were shopping. Um, so you can do a lot of things with that impulse control, not just life or death. But um, yeah, just be aware. If you struggle with impulse control and you're drinking, your like tolerance is going to go down. Okay, I'll try to remember that. Um, so we're going to end the show here. What three points would you like you know, the people to remember from the show? I wish everyone, no matter how old you are, will complete an advanced directive. I have one. My spouse has one. We copied them. The hospital has copies. We have copies in the glove compartments of our car, along with our marriage, a copy of our marriage certificate, just to make sure, no matter if we're traveling or not, we always have that with us. So um, there's that. And, you know, plan ahead. Know if you're stuck in the hospital for a couple days and you go home, somebody usually will need to, you know, help you get in the house and get back to it um, I think ahead of time when it comes to when you get older do you have enough savings that if you don't have coverage you could go to a board and care or whatever that looks like or talk to your family and see who can help care for you if needed and I would say go see an insurance broker go see somebody that can understand things that can explain to you whether or not you have long-term care when 
and how long it takes to approve it and prove it. Um, the other thing I would say is support Hospice of Ukiah. They do a wonderful job. Um, and the last thing, anybody that needs a job, become an IHSS worker. We need a lot more of them. Those people are people that are helping people care for you in your home. My last little statement, if I could give one more shameless plug, is it's Social Work Month. And people think of social workers in all different like ways so social workers are not just county social workers they're not just um you know people who show up in an emergency there are also licensed clinical social workers that provide therapy there are social workers in the hospital trying to advocate for you to family to friends to get you help and all those things so lcsw you make good money it's a complex job and you help a lot of people become an LCSW. You can do that at the college. Not at the Mendocino no. College, but you can start your ladder at Mendocino College. Okay. Uh, okay. Thank you very much, Angela. Um, keep up the great work at Case Management. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>